This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. You are listening to The Arenality on RFM. Hello everyone, my name is Arina. Thank you for tuning in on Otago Access Radio for my podcast and radio show, The Arenality. I would like to acknowledge our listeners on Radio Kidnappers in Hawke's Bay, Wellington Access Radio, Plains FM in Christchurch, and Free FM in Hamilton. Um, hello from Dunedin and to our international listeners out there tuning into the podcast, hello from New Zealand. So the Arenality is a platform for women with international backgrounds on their cultural identities, belonging, well-being, and passions in Aotearoa. So in this episode, we have Kirstine McClay. So Kirstine is a Kiwi mother of five who has lived in Japan, Vietnam, and the United Kingdom. So she writes children's books and also has a charity called The Starfish Collective for Refugee Help. Kira, Kirstine, thank Kira. you for being here today. Arena. <laughs> yeah, thank you for being here today. I'm really excited to chat with you. Ah, thank you. Yeah, so we are friends at Chai and Chat. So do you want to tell us a bit about Chai and Chat? Yeah, Chai and Chat is a lovely group of women um, from all different nationalities and backgrounds. Um, and I just saw them on social media and thought, oh, it looks like the kind of thing that I would like to be part of. And I came along and now I've ended up um, joining with some others to be volunteers for for keeping it going and promoting it. Mm. I like how it's a space for women to just get together and yes. just like be themselves, talk about their cultures. I think that's just amazing that you hold space for that. Yes, yes. And I think for a lot of people, a lot of us who have lived internationally, um, and now, of course, because of COVID, things have shut down. There's not so much opportunity to travel and meet people in an international setting like that. So mm-hmm. for me, it was like a real breath of fresh air to see people from around the world and hear about their different experiences and cultures. Mm. Yeah. And um, thank you for being here today. I really want us to talk about your travels. You So you identify as a Kiwi New Zealander. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, you might be one of the first Kiwi New Zealanders I'll be speaking to on the Arnality. Your your experiences is different because you lived in different cultures and yes. you came back here, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about your life um, in Japan. So you started moving to Japan first, right? Yes, yes. So there was a program called the JET program, which I think still exists. It's the Japan Exchange Teaching Program. Um, so when I finished my degree at Otago, which was um, I did um, bachelor's in English Lit and Classical Studies, and then I did master's in English Lit, and then I saw that they were wanting people, particularly with English language um, background, to go to Japan and teach English. I guess in my family we've always had perhaps a slightly more multicultural background um, than some, I guess. Um, and my grandparents had been to Japan. And the origins of that was because my grandma- grandfather was involved in World War II. Um, and as a Christian, he was a minister as well and a lecturer at Knox College. And as a Christian and a minister, he felt like he wanted to come to peace with having been in the war 
and um, to visit the countries that had previously been enemy countries. Mm. So he actually also went to Italy and Germany. And then, of course, Japan was was the other one. Um, And I know that it was a really amazing experience for my grandparents. And they came back with, like, kimonos and um, Japanese dolls and all these really cool things from Japan. And when I was a kid, like, I'd take it to school and do, like, show and tell and... Back then, not many people had travelled somewhere exotic like Japan. Mm -hmm. Um, So everyone was always really interested in it. And I guess I kind of got the idea in my head, one day I'm going to go there if I get the opportunity. Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for the backstory. And how was life in Japan? Um, So I went there about 1995, not to give away my age, but... (laughs) Um, And... Back then, of course, we didn't have the same access to internet. I think emails were just coming in. Um, So a lot of your communication with home was was just letters. Um, I've seen some young people go to Japan now and everything that they do is on Facebook. And I think, wow, that's a really different experience from from what I had. Um, We had mostly, um, we were treated extremely well in Japan and welcomed and... um, People were sent to different areas. I was sent to a little country area um, because I thought, being from Dunedin is not a very big town, I thought I might not cope, like in Tokyo or somewhere like that. Um, But when I was sent to this little country area, I didn't realise that like I was going to be the only person with a Western face in this little town, and except for a couple of teachers in my school who were English teachers, most people there didn't speak English. Um, And I didn't have any Japanese at the time. I just could say konnichiwa and count to ten or something. Mm. So I had to learn Japanese in quite a big hurry as well. Um, And there were some cultural things that sort of had to get your head around um, and go through culture shock and all that sort of thing. Um, Like just people looking at you because you're different. Like that wouldn't have probably happened in Tokyo, but in in this little town where I was, that happened. Or little kids would follow me around at the supermarket, see what I was buying. (laughs) And they would say things like, um, like when my Japanese got better, I could understand what they were saying. And it's like, there's an American. I wonder if the American is putting hamburgers in her shopping trolley. (laughs) And then I would turn around and say, I'm from New Zealand. And they would say, what's New Zealand? (laughs) That is adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Or they'd just, you know, you get gaijin duck, gaijin duck, like foreigner, foreigner, wherever you went. And they would expect you not to understand because you're a foreigner. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> that is such an interesting uh, experience, and I, I like. It's funny that they, if they see a white person, they think it's an American. And probably, yes, yeah, <laughs> uh, probably because like that was what they know back then. Yeah, and what's New Zealand, right? Mm, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what was the thing that you learned the most while you were in Japan? Like, of course, the cultural values are so different, right? Being a Kiwi and like. Um, you were expected to adapt in Japan. And how long were you there? I ended up being there for five years. That's a long actually. time. So it's a long time, yeah. yeah. So I did three years on the JET program, and then I did a private contract for two years. Uh, yeah. Um, I think when you go to any culture or country that's very different to your own, it's quite a humbling experience. It makes you realise that you're not the centre of the universe or your culture is not the centre of the universe. Um I don't want to sort of like knock Western culture per se, but I I do find there was a lot more humility in Japanese or Asian culture generally than Western. 
Um, and I think that that's, that's not a bad thing. I think sometimes we need a balance of... Mm. Um, and I think also just even little things like education. Like I went there with this shiny new master's degree and you know thought I was doing pretty well. And then I remember going into a public library and realising that I couldn't read any of the books in there. Mm. So just like um, it makes you relate to like immigrants or um, refugees or um, people who have come from another culture to here, you can understand what they're going through as well. Mm. Um, and that, you know, you go somewhere new, you're just like a blank slate yourself. Yeah, <laughs> you feel like you're like a nobody and like you're trying to build up your other self, you know, like adapting to that culture. Yeah, well, I think I found also with language a lot of my Japanese friends were a lot more outgoing in Japanese than they were in English because in English they're checking themselves all the time mm. to check for mistakes and things. And I think it's it's the same for anybody sometimes. If you learn a different language and it's quite different to your own culture, you also maybe have slightly different persona mm. when you're speaking that language. Mm. Um, so when I'm speaking Japanese, like I tend to touch my nose because it's what Japanese people do or bow mm. a lot or things like that that I wouldn't do in English. <laughs> yeah. And strange things too, like um, I think as a woman, like my idea of beauty, I just remember starting to think, like looking in the mirror one day and thinking, oh, I wish I looked like Asian ladies because they're more beautiful. And, you know, you get a idea that, like it's kind of like a different standard that mm. you're judging yourself by. And it's not consciously. This doesn't happen consciously. It's just... Mm. Um, yeah, especially when you are in Japan, you are part of the minority, and you're seeing how the majority view beauty standards, yes. and how that's not fitting. And you see pictures stand. of gorgeous ladies in kimonos everywhere, and um, I just felt like a big, big tall giant with a big nose. And <laughs> mm. yeah, and if we reflect that to like, um, uh, if there was a an Asian living in a Kiwi country, how would they feel if they see portrayals of like beauty being only like white people or like there's like a different standard of beauty which they unfortunately don't fit in, you know? Well, I think I like to think that now in New Zealand we're much more multicultural. Mm-hmm. And so, like our, our models and our people and our TV ads and billboards and things are probably more, you know, lots of different races. Um, whereas I guess the thing in Japan it was it was very homogeneous, like everyone was Japanese except for a few. Mm. <laughs> um, so of course it makes sense that most of their their poster people were going to be Japanese people because they're marketing to Japanese people. Yeah. But I can imagine, like um, I think years ago in our history, like 150 years ago, when like some of my ancestors came from Scotland to Dunedin, and I know there were a lot of Chinese came out here. But it was very, um, and I think it's also like it kind of squashed the Maori culture too, like very much the European culture was promoted. Um, and I think I can understand how people would feel pushed aside or like that they're not important or they're not beautiful or they're not special. Mm. Um, because I think back in those days it was a kind of racism and it was also um, part of colonisation yeah. because the... Europeans kind of came and said we are the dominant mm. and stamped their mark um, 
but I, I like to think that modern New Zealand's moving away from that and more multicultural now. Yeah, definitely getting better. <coughs> yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that story being in Japan. And you also lived in Vietnam. Were there any differences? Um, of course, there is differences. Like, can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I think... Um, like, again, people have stereotypes of different countries and areas of the world. And I think my stereotype of, you know, I knew a few Asian people when I was a kid, but there's a lot more here now. Um, and my stereotype was probably like, oh, they're all really clever. They're all really good at maths. And <laughs> they've come here because they're so brilliant. And um, like the students, the international students who came and things. And I think some people also had a stereotype of like that all Asia is the same. And having travelled a lot in Asia now, um, yeah, they're just so different among the different cultures there. And, of course, the two that I knew the best was Japan and Vietnam. Japan, of course, is very, very developed um, technologically, and they had things there back in the 90s that we didn't get till the early 2000s, like kids had cell phones and things. Um so that's sort of one kind of society, whereas Vietnam at the time when I went to Vietnam, so that's like early 2000s, around 2000. I was there for the 2000 New Year. Mm. <laughs> um, people said Vietnam was like a truck turning a corner. And so there were people living a good lifestyle, but people that were still living in, in poverty at that time. I'm not, it might be different now. Um I think the economy has just continued to improve there, although it may be affected by COVID. But if you've got a country where there's been a terrible war, and of course everybody knows there was a really terrible war in Vietnam, um, and it involved the French and then the Americans, and then even after 1975, after the Americans pulled out, um, the Vietnamese were still fighting um, border wars with other, like I think they had some... uh, battles or or Mm. things with um, Cambodia and China Um, it takes a long long time and a couple of generations for the psyche of the war um, to to leave a country and that's probably the biggest difference also because Vietnam was a colony of France for about 150 years so I think in general whereas Japan has never been a colony so in general, there were more people that spoke more languages, um, perhaps a little bit more open to other cultures, although Japan was extremely welcoming and they were very good to me too. <laughs> mm. um, I think also the difference though was um, I lived in Hanoi. So I was living in a big city that time. If I'd lived in a little village in Vietnam, it might have been a different experience. And that was my experience in Japan. Yeah. Um, but in Hanoi, of course, there were more people that, Spoke a lot of the older people spoke French because they had to learn it at school when they were younger, and so they would see my face and speak French to me. Mm. (laughs) I started learning Vietnamese before I went there because I had a lot of friends who were former refugees from Vietnam who lived in Japan, and some of them wanted to learn English, and so I was helping some of them with English. And then when I knew I was going to Vietnam, I um, learned. Vietnamese of mm. well one lady in particular mm. <laughs> um, so we had to talk to each other in Japanese because she didn't speak English and I didn't speak Vietnamese and try and teach each other our own languages <laughs> that is interesting because yes. well, you're using Japanese as the lingua franca yes yeah. yes because we couldn't communicate with each other 
by any other way. Ah, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm interested to know about like how all your living experiences like in Japan, Vietnam, and we don't have time to talk about your experiences in UK, but I really want you to talk about that as well because UK isn't an Asian country, but mm. it's very different to the New Zealand culture. Yes, yes. And how does all that affect your cultural identity once you have came back to New Zealand? I think when I went to the UK, I expected to feel like I was at home. It also might have been the headspace I was in at the time. Um, because because it's an English-speaking country, um, but I still felt like a foreigner there. Um, and even in Scotland, which is where, as I say, some of my ancestors came from Scotland to Dunedin in 1863, I, I didn't feel like I belonged there. And it kind of reinforced that my home, my Turanga Waiwai, is Dunedin, or Te Puti. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think... There was an expectation perhaps by local people in the UK that you were going to feel at home too because your mother tongue's English. Mm. Um, but whereas I, I guess in Asia people were more tolerant perhaps if you made cultural mistakes or, yeah. Mm, interesting. <laughs> because, yeah, well, it's like in Japan I knew a guy who was Japanese-American and he didn't speak any Japanese when he came to Japan and people were generally less tolerant of him than the rest of us because he looked like a Japanese person so they expected him they're like it's in your blood you should be able to speak Japanese mm. and he's like yeah but it's like three generations back mm, <laughs> yeah. yeah so language really um, affects how you perceive culture yes yeah. well also people make assumptions yeah and like my friend who was Japanese American he would get around with a red-headed blue-eyed girl from New Zealand mm. <laughs> and she was really fluent in Japanese so like people would ask them questions and they would look at him and he would look blankly and then she would answer the questions and they're just like what planet are these mm. people from so it, it, it's the whole not judging a book by its cover or Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And after all that, now you are learning other languages as well. What inspired you to do that? Um, well, I felt bad um, that I had traveled to all these different countries and I'd learned Japanese and Vietnamese, but I didn't know te reo Māori. So when I came back to New Zealand, that was a big aim um, to learn that. It's still a work in progress. I'm not brilliant at it by any means um, but um, I did uh, level 1 and level 2 courses in it but then by the time it came to level 3 I was pregnant with child number 3 and I had two little boys at home and they said you have to do three nights a week if you want to do level 3 and I thought no it's going to have to wait till in the future but I'm mm -hmm. trying to do a bit um, on an app of mm -hmm. Te Reo Māori and um, hope to go back to some classes sometime in the future too. Mm. Um, and then um, through the Red Cross, I was a volunteer for um, helping with refugee settlement. Um, and I got to know a lot of um, Arabic-speaking people. Um, so I also started learning Arabic, which I also do through Duolingo. You know the app Duolingo? Yep. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, and so that's also a work in, in progress. But my I had heard Arabic a little bit before because my stepmum is from Palestine. So I'd heard 
that language a little bit before too. Yeah. And also, of course, with Māori, I'd always heard a bit of Te Reo Māori growing up and in songs and place names in our New Zealand culture. Yeah. yeah. I love how all of those experiences build up um, to where you are today and like you're doing stuff because of all those experiences. Yeah, I think I certainly... While I love New Zealand and I'm proud of being Kiwi, I certainly also see myself as a global citizen and it makes you see how everything is all connected Mm. Um, and you think some of those things like wars and terrible things that are happening, you know, they're not actually that far away in in the big picture of it and when you think about issues like climate change, I think there's so many things that are just going to affect all of us Mm. Um, and... Yeah, I think the global inclusive attitude is is the best way to go for for everybody's well-being. Exactly, yeah, because yeah. everyone is everywhere. We just yes. have to cope with that now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and adapt and like um, let people experience their culture wherever they are. It doesn't have to be your home countries. And thank you for holding that space in Chai and Chat as well, you know. Mm. Um, so we... Well, do my bit with others. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about your books because you also write children's books and I really want people to know about um, that side of you. Can you tell us about that? So I've always um, written kids stories and started off because I'm the oldest kid in my family and I'd tell them to my younger brother Um, and I used to have little stories published in the Otago Daily Times (laughs) when I was from about 10 years old Um, and then yeah, it took a long time until I actually got something published. I think because of all the travel and so on, it wasn't until I was settled back here again. But I've, I've just published two kids' books. The first one was in 2016, and that's like a fantasy novel thing called The Ruby Scepter. Um, and the second one is um, a little book of poems for kids, and they're just sort of funny, fun poems. None of them are great works of literature or anything, but it's just something fun for kids. Um, and it's called Quirky Words. Yeah. yeah, do you want to share with us some of the poems today? Um, yeah, I'll read one. <laughs> so they just sort of, I've got um, a picture of all the kids on the cover and I actually have written a poem for each of my kids in ah. there as well. But some of them, it was like gathering together lots of poems. Some of them were really old things that I'd written back at high school and I just sort of polished them up and put them all together for the book. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'll read one. The Landscape of My Dinner As I sat at the table one evening eating tea, I imagined myself being just the size of one small pea. If I was only pea-sized, if I were oh so small, my dinner would look different, not like my tea at all. My mashed spuds would be mountains, stretching up so high, my broccoli a forest with outcrops of mince pie. Tomato sauce would be a swamp through which I'd have to wade. The butter melting from my spuds, a river to evade. It would be all gooey and messy living there, with potato in my sneakers and butter in my hair. As I sat at my table, one evening eating tea, I thought about how lucky I am just to be me. For though it might be beautiful, I think I'd find life tough in the landscape of my dinner with all that icky stuff. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, That was amazing. Even as a 22-year-old, 
I it felt very imaginative. Like it's very much a Kiwi dinner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm potatoes and peas. Yes, I, I love that part as well. It's very Kiwi. Yeah, meat and three veg. Yes, yes. <laughs> Wow, I really want to read more of your stories. It's just amazing. And how long have you been writing since you were ten? Yeah, well, even before that, actually, I had a little story on um, a kids' radio program when I was five. Huh? I, I couldn't write then. My mum wrote it out for me and sent it in just for fun. And yeah, you were so creative. So sort of yeah. something I've always done. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> and do you see yourself doing this more in the future? I've actually just finished another manuscript called The King's Music Box. <gasps> so I'm hoping to try to publish that soon. Yes. Um, yeah, and there are other ideas in the pipeline. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'm really excited for that. Yeah. Briefly, can you tell us about Starfish? Yep. So if you Google the Starfish Collective, it's just a, you know, one of those three free websites that you put together. So it's on Weebly. Um, then you can see more about um, our group and our aims. I do it with a good friend of mine, um, Thera Stoff, mm-hmm. and um, recently a former refugee lady from Syria called Ahlam Safar has joined us, which is great because she's got the cultural insight um, for for the Syrian side. Um, but it's we're hoping to help any refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as we are able, and we're particularly interested in the new community sponsorship program for refugees, which has been well. It was they had a run of it in 2018, mm. and then it had to be stopped for COVID, um, and then they're reintroducing it now. So yeah, thank mm. you so much, Christine, for being here today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Arina. So that is the end of our episode of the Arinality today. So I hope you learn a lot about Christine, about her stories living in Japan, Vietnam, United Kingdom. She also read one of her poems or stories in her children's books. Uh, and I think that was like one of the highlights of this podcast as well. So if anyone would like to contact me, feel free to email aizalarina at gmail.com. You can follow me on my Instagram at arinaiza. Otherwise, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye. You've been listening to The Arenality on RFM. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.